If you would open your Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It is in the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus gives one last word of instruction to his disciples, to Peter, James, and John. And he says to them, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. And among the specific petitions of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus taught us to pray and lead us not into temptation. By the way, in the Lord's Prayer, it can be argued that in the specific petitions, for the present, give us this day our daily bread. For the past, forgive us our debt, our debts. For the future, lead us not into temptation. Temptation is a subject tied to what we've been looking at in this series on original sin. While the condition has been cured, the symptoms remain. As we saw in Romans 8, Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. This passage indicates the real possibility of sin in our lives. That the possibility of sin is in fact quite real. Oftentimes entering into our lives as a result of temptation. This is one of the issues that Paul brings up in his letter to the Corinthians. Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, perhaps one of the best known verses on temptation. But let's get some background before we get into chapter 10. In chapter 8, Paul tackles the issue that the Corinthians have written him about. They have written him about whether or not it's okay to eat meat that's been offered to idols in pagan temples. And he argues that love rather than knowledge is what should mark us as God's people. We are not driven by what we know, but by who we love and what we love. Concern for the well-being of a brother or sister, someone for whom Christ has died, should trump everything else. Then in chapter 9, Paul seems to go off on a tangent, but he's actually giving additional support for the argument he's going to make. He talks about the fact that he is an apostle and he has the rights of an apostle. But secondly, he has not made use of these rights. Um, Then he talks about the fact that he is willing to be anyone, if you wish, in a given situation. To the Greeks, he can be a Greek. To the Jews, a Jew, and so on. And then at the end of the chapter, he gives the analogy of what we would call the Olympic Games. They were the Isthmian Games. Um... And the whole analogy of training and discipline and self-control. Otherwise, one might not win a prize. One might forfeit the prize. And I read this several weeks ago. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Just a a parenthesis here. Um, In contrast to our Olympic Games or most athletic competitions, for us today, the end result is what it's all about. Whoever gets to the finish line first wins. That was not the case with the Greeks. 
you had to train in the correct way. And if you took any shortcuts in your training, you were disqualified. So it isn't just simply getting to the end first. You had to do it in a proper way. And Paul says, um, I need to be careful lest I, you know, I discipline myself. Otherwise, I might be disqualified. In chapter 10, Paul returns to the issue that he brought up in chapter 8. Actually, the Corinthians did. Um, but he doesn't do it right away. We have the first 13 verses in which Paul is actually still talking about what he was in chapter 9. And I would just remind you that the chapter divisions were not there. Paul didn't write, okay, here's chapter 10. These are things that humans have done, and oftentimes I think they're put in the wrong place. So he said, I am an apostle. Um, I know what I'm doing. You know, I have certain privileges that I've not taken advantage of. I fit into various social situations and I seek to control myself, to discipline myself because he did not want to be disqualified from the prize. Now if you think about it, this this is quite shocking. Perhaps not so much to the Corinthians as to us. How could it be that the Apostle Paul would be disqualified how is it that somehow he would no longer be an apostle, um, that he would no longer be a part of the people of God? How is this even possible? One would argue, Paul, you could never be disqualified for the prize. You would never fall away from the faith. You would never lose your eternal salvation. But Paul does present this as a real possibility. And if it could happen to him, then it could happen to the arrogant Corinthians who think they know everything. And remember, it's not knowledge, it's love. But they're all about knowledge. In the first half of chapter 10, Paul writes of the privileges that those in the Old Testament had. And yet, in spite of all of these privileges, they did, in fact, fall away. They were disqualified. They did not enter the promised land. And if it happened to them, it could happen to the Corinthians. And by extension, it could happen to us. Look, if you would, in the first four verses of chapter 10. Here we see Israel's privileges. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses, as in the cloud and or in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ couple things to note as we jump in. He starts out with the word for, and it shows that there's a connection. So where you see chapter 10, we should sort of erase that, and he's continuing his thought from chapter 9. But also he calls them brothers, and this is something we find throughout uh, the book of Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians. Um, I think we might be hesitant to call these people brothers and sisters. Um, and for Paul, the one He's the one who founded the church. He's the one who preached and they got saved. Suddenly they think they know better than the man who started the church. Um, and yet he still calls them brothers. He has not rejected them. They are his brothers and sisters in Christ. But now he speaks of their forefathers. Our forefathers. As best we can tell, most of the Corinthian believers were in fact not Jewish. There were some Jews in the congregation, including uh, the head of the synagogue, 
before he became a Christian. Um, the Corinthians are Gentiles. But Paul wants them to see a continuity. Old Testament saints, New Testament saints. God's people in the Old Covenant, God's people in the New Covenant. So we are New Testament people, but the people of the Old Testament are our forefathers. They are our ancestors. Okay? And he begins, I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact. This is something he will use again later in this letter. What Paul is saying is, you, I know that you know this. Okay? You, this data, this information, you already have this. Okay? It's already in your system. Um, but I'm not sure that you understand it. Okay? You have the information, but I'm not sure that you understand it correctly. So he wants to tell them the meaning and the significance, the import of what this material is. He recounts the story of Israel and the Exodus as they left Egypt in their time in the wilderness. And he finds by analogy that they had two privileges that we think of as exclusively New Testament privileges. They had baptism and they had the Lord's Supper. How is this possible? I mean, these are New Testament institutions. Well, he tells us they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. That is, they were under the cloud where God directed them and how they should go, and then they passed through the Red Sea. Paul sees these as types of baptism. They were baptized into Moses as opposed to baptized into Christ. Moses is a type of Christ. He was a deliverer. He brought them out of Egypt, and they passed through the Red Sea, a form of baptism. And secondly, they ate, they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. That is, they ate manna and they drank water that came from the rock. This is found in Exodus 16 and 17. Why does Paul call this spiritual? Uh, you won't find any place in the Old Testament that manna is referred to as spiritual. Well, Paul's use of it is quite different from what the Corinthians, how they imagined. They, they saw spiritual as sort of a higher plane than the, than the purely material. I would suggest that Paul uses spiritual for at least three reasons. First of all, they were both supplied supernaturally. God had miraculously supernaturally provided manna day after day. And when Moses hit the rock, water came out and the thirsty Israelites were able to drink. Secondly, I think Paul wants to suggest an analogy of something that the Corinthians have come to see as magical. They have come to see communion, and I would say even baptism, when you get to chapter 15, being baptized for the dead, as somehow having magical power of some kind. But what Paul wants them to know, and this is the third reason why he uses the word spiritual, the source of those things, and that is God. God provides the manna, and the rock is hit, and water comes out, and the rock we see as a type of the Lord Jesus Christ in which life-giving water flows out. So here we have the Israelites who have what we have, at least by analogy. They have baptism and they had the Lord's Supper. And what happened to them? Look, if you would, in verses 5 through 10. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. 
and in one day 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. Nevertheless, that is, in the light of the privileges they had, they had baptism and communion by analogy, yet they failed to obtain the prize, which was the promised land. God was not pleased with most of them, as evidenced by the fact that they died in the desert. They didn't make it to Canaan. Verse 6, I think, is key in that Paul wants his readers to know that the reason he's mentioning Israel is that the things that happened to them are an example or should be an example to keep the Corinthians from doing what they should not do, to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. And what did Israel do and what should be avoided? Well, he mentions four things in verses 7 through 10. Um, Only in the first, by the way, does he not mention the judgment. The other three, he does mention that judgment came. I think the first one is, is the well-known story. The other ones may maybe not as much. The first one is the incident of the golden calf. Um, Paul doesn't mention the golden calf, interestingly enough. Uh, he doesn't even mention that Moses was on Sinai getting the law from God. Rather, he says, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. And this we know. We know what this is. Well, Moses was up there... Uh, The people say, we don't know what's happened to him. Aaron, make us a god. He did, and then they got up, and they began to indulge in pagan revelry. The second incident is found in Numbers chapter 25. This is when they are almost to Canaan. They are on the eastern side of the Jordan River, near the Dead Sea. And they are tempted by the Moabites to worship Baal of Peor. And 23,000 of them died in one day. God's judgment uh, fell on them. Um, Let me read to you from Numbers chapter 25. While Israel was staying in Shechem, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to to sacrifice to their gods. The people ate and bowed down before these gods. This is a recurring theme, and it's beyond what we're looking at, but sexual immorality and eating something offered to an idol seem to go hand in hand. And Paul sort of mentions it as an aside. Um, Every other mention of idol food, that is food that is offered to idols, in the New Testament is tied with sexual immorality. When the Council of Jerusalem sends out a letter to Gentile believers, uh, they mention meat offered to idols and sexual immorality. In the letter to the church in Pergamum in Revelation 2, we find this, as well as to the church in Thyatira. Um, eating meat offered to idols oftentimes leads to sexual immorality. The third incident is from Numbers chapter 21, in which the Israel complained against God. They were tired of manna, the spiritual food. No more spiritual food for us. They wanted something else. They tested the Lord, and so the Lord sent snakes among them. And many of them died as a result of being bitten by these snakes. And this is the famous type of Christ where Moses builds a brass serpent and puts it up on a pole. And anyone who looked at it, even though they were bitten by a snake, they would not die. And as Jesus tells Nicodemus, as the Son of Man 
uh, so will the Son of Man be lifted up, as was the serpent in the wilderness. The fourth incident, the last one, is found in Numbers chapter 14. And this one has nothing to do with food. They were grumbling about Moses. They were tired of him being their leader. Just as the Corinthians were unhappy with Paul, uh, I'm not sure that this is why Paul mentions it, but it could be. But there was, in fact, judgment that came as a result. Uh, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, the three leaders of this rebellion against Moses, the earth swallowed up, uh, opened up and swallowed them and their families. 250 men who challenged Aaron as high priest were uh, consumed by fire. An additional 14,000 700 people were killed when they blamed Moses for what happened to the 250 men and the men who the earth opened up and swallowed them. Why is Paul telling us this? Why is he telling the Corinthians this? It is a warning. Look if you would at verses 11 through 13. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Paul tells the Corinthians that the Israelites serve as an example To keep us, in verse number 6, to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things. But here in verse 11, as warnings. Um, These are warnings for those who live after Jesus had come. He is the one, the fulfillment of the ages. Okay, the Israelites, they're before Jesus. But Paul says, listen, they had baptism by analogy. They had communion by analogy. And look at what God did to them. Do not assume that now that we live after Jesus, after the resurrection, that nothing bad can happen to us. They are our ancestors. They are our forefathers. And they serve as examples and as warnings to us. Paul wants the Corinthians to take care. If you think you're okay, you think you're standing firm, as the Israelites did, we're the chosen people of God. God took us out of Egypt. We're fine. Um, The Corinthians, I think, have the same attitude. And Paul says, you need to be careful. You need to be careful that you don't fall as the Israelites did. Verse number 13 is perhaps the best known verse of this chapter. As one writer put it, it has served generations of Christians as a word of hope in times of difficulty. But it is almost always cited in isolation from its context. And one could argue for good reason. It is difficult to see how it fits into the whole scheme of what Paul's been talking about since chapter 8. In fact, if you look at your Bible and if you read verse number 12 and then skip 13 and go to verse number 14, it's a very smooth transition. It really works. Verse 13 is sort of a bump. It sort of takes us we're like to a different place. We're not quite sure what it is that Paul is doing. In reality, it serves as a hinge verse of, of, of sorts. That is to say, 
it has a, it is a continuation of the warnings from what's come previously, and then it sort of swings over to verse number 14, in which we have a word of assurance. But what is verse 13 all about? What is Paul trying to say? I begin by suggesting that Paul, you know, they didn't have cell phones, not instant communication, so he is anticipating their objections. He is anticipating what they will say by way of argument to what he has just said. Paul, you don't understand our situation. You don't understand our place in the community. You don't understand the surrounding culture, the pressure that is being put on us by our friends and family. But Paul does, in fact, understand. And that's why he writes in verse number 13. As we live our lives, we make choices. Correct choices, spelled out in God's law, or... We may make incorrect choices, wrong choices. Our circumstances, our surroundings, one could even argue our genes, our genetic code, so many other things present us with a lot of reasons, a lot of excuses why we should not do what God says we should do. I remember years ago speaking to someone and he was just aghast. He just was appalled. He could not believe that God would not allow us to sleep with whomever we wanted. He says, biology tells us that we need to do that. And how can the Bible be so anti-science by telling us, no, you're not to have premarital intercourse, and once you get married, you're to be faithful to your spouse? How can the Bible tell us to do that? Well, again, our circumstances and science and others give us excuses for doing the things that we should not do. Paul calls these excuses temptations, reasons for we give for not doing the right thing. And if we are not careful, I'm not sure that this is a Corinthian problem, but I think it is for us today. We will see the world in terms of cause and effect in which we are the cause and God is the effect. See, Paul gave four examples, and at least in three of them, uh, he mentions the judgment. The, fourth, uh, the first one, there was in fact judgment, he just doesn't mention it. And so we might uh, think, oh, that's what Paul is saying, that if you do wrong things, then you're gonna, God's going to smack you, he's going to judge you. That's not what this is about. This is not what Paul intends. What he wants the Corinthians to know, and us by extension, is that our lives, our circumstances, our experiences are under God's providence. The almighty sovereign God is in control. And when we face a given situation where we have a choice of two things or perhaps more, to do the right thing or to not do the right thing, we need to understand that there is something greater than our circumstances. There is something greater than our choices, and that is God. Otherwise, we might, I think, give in to despair, or we might, in fact, feel rather cocky and self-confident that we can handle this on our own. God is greater than any temptation, any situation. He provides a way out so that we can do the right thing. God has done that for the Corinthians. They just aren't looking for it, and so they don't see it. 
Part of that way out, by the way, is found in verse number 14. At the beginning of verse number 14. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. Uh, Therefore means he's drawing a conclusion based on previous material. And Paul has reached a conclusion with his dear friends, the Corinthians. And he tells them, you need to run away from these issues. You need to run away from sexual immorality. By the way, in chapter 6, Paul said the same thing. Flee from sexual immorality. The immediate context is verse number 13. God will provide a way out. Run. That is one of the ways that God provides for us to escape or to flee, to get away from temptation, lest we fall into sin. We shouldn't wait for a way out. Idolatry is wrong. It is sinful. We should run. But let's go back to verse number 13. See what Paul is saying. I hear Paul telling the Corinthians that giving into temptation is not the only option. It isn't the only option. I remember someone years ago saying, the only thing I can't stand is temptation. Um, as though somehow temptation is all-powerful, that it, if it comes into our path, we must give in, that we have no hope. Uh, we must capitulate to the temptation that comes into our lives. No. No, that is not the only option. Why? Because God is faithful. When it comes to the temptations that are common to this life, the temptations that have come to us are common to the human race. We should remember that God is faithful. If you go back to the beginning of this book, in 1 Corinthians 1, it's one of the first things Paul says in his introduction. God, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, is faithful. God is faithful. And his faithfulness in verse number 13 is seen in two ways. First of all, he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. This should remind the Corinthians and us as well that in fact God is in control. There is prior activity. God isn't sort of reactive. God has always been there and watching over us in taking care of us. But there's something else. We are, in fact, called to endure. Okay? That we not be tempted beyond what we can bear. But it doesn't mean as soon as temptation comes in, God somehow swoops in and delivers us. There may, in fact, be a period of time of temptation in which we are to endure by God's grace and not give in to temptation. God will be with us as we endure. We are responsible to endure by God's grace. But the second way that we see God's faithfulness is he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Did you hear that? Let me read it again. He will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. On the face of it, this sounds like a contradiction. God will provide a way out so that we can continue to endure. Wait, if, if, you, if there's a way out, then I don't have to endure. I, I'm out. I'm out of the situation. Yes, God, in fact, will provide a way that we may endure. We would like to think that there is an end to it all, that a particular temptation comes and either we give in or we, by God's grace, overcome. And end of story, that, that's the end of it. Um, maybe, but maybe not. The reality is, either way, God is faithful. 
testimonies have been given by individuals in which there was a particular weakness or sin before they became Christians and when they became Christians God miraculously, supernaturally took it away. But there are also testimonies of people that when they became Christians God did not take it away. And it was, if you wish, a thorn in the flesh that they struggled with until the day of their death. But in either case, God is faithful. He will not allow us to be overwhelmed as we endure, and he will provide a way out as we endure. As I said, one of the ways out is that we are to flee. We've been looking at the matter of original sin. And I think what I find, at least in my own thinking, is two schools of thought emerging. One is it's not a big deal. We've been cured of the condition of original sin. We cannot fail. We cannot be disqualified, as Paul spoke of in chapter 9. I think the lessons, the warnings from Israel should serve and teach us. So that's one school of thought. It's not a big deal. The other, I think, is it is so big a deal that we cannot handle it. So on the other, one hand, there is this sense of oh, cockiness, of self-sufficiency. I am saved, eternally saved, and I believe that, by the way. But I will never fall. I cannot fail. I cannot be disqualified. And Paul would say, no, that is a very real possibility. But on the other hand, I think we can become so pessimistic and so burdened by our sins that we think there is no hope, that we are doomed to lives of failure and we're waiting, Lord Jesus, come and deliver us from this life of sin. I think Paul wants to correct our thinking about this. We are not alone. God is faithful. He will not let us be tempted beyond what we can bear because he is in control. Even before that temptation came into our lives, God was there. God is in control. But we're not, we're not supposed to be babies where God does everything. We are his children and by God's grace we are to endure. We are to say no to temptation. We are to be like Joseph if necessary and take off our coat and run from sin as he did from Potiphar's wife. God will be with us as we endure. God is faithful and he will provide a way out so that we can stand up under it. In studying uh, for this series, I have found myself personally weighed down, perhaps by focusing so much on sin rather than God's grace and God's faithfulness. In looking at temptation, I think there is a tendency to lose focus as well. Jesus warned his disciples, watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. He teaches us to pray, lead us not into temptation. And so if we're not careful, we become so paranoid and so pessimistic and defeatist in our view. And Paul gently reminds us, God is faithful. Yes, we have been cured from original sin. Jesus died for us. But sin is still with us. It's something we will struggle with every day until we die. But that's okay, because God is faithful. 
He will not let us be tempted beyond what we can endure, but we are to endure. And he will provide a way out so that we can endure, because we are to endure. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our Father, it seems that we, I don't want to say doomed, but we, we tend to think of ourselves first. We seem to be the center of our thoughts, our thinking, even when it comes to being your children and the matter of sin, temptation, all these things. It's, we want to think it's all about us. And so if possible, we want to know techniques, methods to avoid temptation, to get around temptation, to deal with temptation. In and of themselves, these are not wrong. But the the center of our thought should be the reality that you are faithful. You are faithful. And while we are called to endure We may in fact fail. We probably will from time to time. You're still there. You're still faithful. As we've been looking at the matter of original sin, I I pray by your spirit that we will not lose sight of your grace and your faithfulness and your love. May we learn from the examples of our ancestors, the Israelites in the wilderness, May we heed what Paul told the Corinthians. And above all, may we be confirmed, strengthen our faith, that you, in fact, are faithful. By your Spirit, help us to think on these things and put them into practice in our lives. Thank you for bringing us together today. Above all, thank you for loving us. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.